like out of nowhere in between squat lifts. He was like, I, it was so bad. And um, I was like, wow, this is great. Like, yeah. Um, and I kind of bought it. I, I already knew because, you know, my favorite, you know, my um, favorite person in the world, Billy, he hates, um, he hates Adam Driver. Oh, like he just has okay. no, no feeling towards Adam Driver. Hey guys, this is Jesse. Hi, this is Helen. And we're Asian Bitches Down Under, coming to you live from Sydney, where we've had quite a rainy week, haven't we? Yeah, on and off. It's been a strange week where places had power's been cut and strong wind, and we'd had a, flood, a minor flood in our area again. Uh, we had waterfall <laughs> running down our street. Oh, wow, lovely. Yeah. There was, there was a there was a night that just constantly rained. Yeah, I yeah. love it. I love the sound of rain in the evening. It's so comforting and cozy. Mm-hmm. But the humidity during this time is just insane. I think. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of headaches because I have barometer, barometric, whatever it's called, <laughs> barometer related. Uh, barometer related. Related headaches. I do. So when it's humid, I yeah. get headaches. Yeah, the the heat oh, man. is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where should we start today? Um, well, uh-huh. I guess there's, yeah, it's been quite a um, good week um, over at my end. I uh, watched a couple of, uh, watched a movie I would recommend only in, if you want something to, you know, it's a crisp 90 minutes of uh, kind of travel. Um, mm. I'm talking about the movie Paris Can Wait, uh, starring Diane Lane, one of my favourite actresses. Um, and it's a 2017 film basically about a woman who uh, goes to, who is in Paris. She's married to Alec Baldwin. Uh, he's like a film producer. Mm-hmm. And um, she's kind of just tagging along as the plus one wife. And she ends up kind of taking a road trip with his assistant um, or his friend through Paris, uh, sorry, through France. Uh, for a couple of days and uh basically it's kind of it's kind of like um you know the films with um uh, rob reiner and um what's his face um i forget his name but uh not rob reiner i forget his name but uh the trip to italy you know those films with a pair of two british comedians did you ever oh, see that oh yeah i think so it's almost oh, like they're brilliant they're such brilliant films. sort of Half trouble, half yeah. It's it's like a food normal. blog. It's really yeah, yeah, just yeah. like a food uh-huh. um video. It's a, like mm-hmm. an hour. It's an hour and a half of seeing like beautiful white people dine in amazing <laughs> uh, and like eat amazing food. And mm-hmm. I was in the mood because you know um, I want to get excited about France, but mm-hmm. also like um, I was hoping they would have a bit of French in there. Not much. There wasn't much, but it was like an engrossing film, and it went to a lot of the places that Mum and I went to oh, when we were in France four years ago. So mm-hmm. it was really awesome to see that on the screen depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, Paris can wait. It, it's, it was directed by Eleanor Coppola, who I believe is was is Francis Ford Coppola's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, like, the script is very weak. It's not a very good script at all. Like, it's supposed to be romance. You you were supposed to believe that she and the French dude, whose name I can't pronounce or don't know, um, it's we're supposed to believe that they have a kind of romance. But it's mm-hmm. it's really, there's, like, zero chemistry between them. It's it's not what what, what makes the film great. The, what makes the film great is seeing Diane Lane. She's mm-hmm. just perfect. Mm-hmm. She always has this. Every role she plays, she's like wounded or she has some past grief. Um, in this one, um, we Female find out that. vulnerability. Yeah. In this one, we find out that um, she had lost a baby um, when it was like 40 days old. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a very sweet film. And mm-hmm. I really, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So it's something How about like you? heartwarming, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay. On my end, I watched. Uh, well, my husband and I, we watched a very strange, well, uh, kind of bizarre. Like, when we finished the film, we're like, okay, so what was that about? We cannot get our head around it. So this film is called White Noise, by uh, directed by Noah Bumbuck. Bumbuck or Bumbuck? Bumbuck, yeah. Yeah, Bumbuck. So he's the same director for Marriage Story and I believe one of your favourite films. Did he direct the Francis Ha? Francis Ha, yeah, yeah. Ha, yeah. 
So it is a 2022 absurdity, absurdist uh, comedy drama uh, adapted from the 1985 novel with the same title by Don DeLillo. So the film stars Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig and Don Chudy. So it's actually set in the 1980s. The story kind of follows the life of an academic, uh, which is played by Adam Driver, who is obsessed about Hitler. So his course is just talks about his whole um, tertiary course is talking about Hitler, his life, his philosophy, his mentality, his thinking, and with his family who lives uh, a change after like an air contamination accident near their home. Um, it's combined with a lot of elements of fear of death and obsession with materialism uh, since the industrialization. Um, I feel like it's more like a satirical trope of a white family in the US, uh, very pretentiously narrating how well they do in life, but deep down they feel the ultimate death that is kind of unavoidable. It's obviously unavoidable for everyone. The movie is somehow quirky. At some point, that my my husband did say that it feels like watching Wes Anderson's movie. It's very mm. vibrant. The presentation is very vibrant. Not so much fast pace. Um, there's not much music in it. I think it's it's a bit strange that there wasn't much music in it. So I couldn't feel it's not very atmospheric. The presentation is very strange. There are a lot of nightmare kind of scenes surrounding a lot of concepts about midlife crisis. Um, but the, uh, the, the the performance is very strange. I think that's the one thing that my both my husband and I pointed out that the performance as in the movie it feels like you're more watch you you're like watching a theater play mm. because the dialogue were like theater alike. It wasn't. It was more like a monologue than conversation. It's not natural. It's almost like a theatric performance that you see on the theater play that they recite a sentence and the other one and the person who they were talking to recites back it's a very yeah i don't know i don't know how i feel about this but yeah my husband hates it (laughs) it's like he just does not understand what he just watched it's just very strange yeah i'm always interested in why um i mean it's always it's always interesting to ask someone why they Dislike something, yeah, or like find it distasteful. Like it, there must be something about the film that offends them, mm. sort of core level. Like it's, and that's so much more interesting to talk to someone who has these feelings about a film because um, you can learn about something about their values mm-hmm. um, in a way that you can't say if they just said, "Oh, I found the film boring." You know, being bored is kind of like the worst case scenario. And I, I suspect for a filmmaker, you don't want to bore people. You I want to either entertain or, like, um, elicit some sort of emotional response. And it sounds like your husband had a very emotional response because I know mm-hmm. last week when we had a workout together, mm-hmm. um, we were exercising together, your husband and I and mm-hmm. our brother. When I asked him what he felt about it, he yeah. uh-huh. got so angry. Like, he was yeah. just like, I, hey, like, he was just so passionate <laughs> suddenly. Like, out of nowhere, in between squat lifts, he was like, I... It was so bad. And um, I was like, wow, this is great. Like, yeah. Um, and I kind of bought it. I, I already knew because, you know, my favorite, you know, my um, favorite person in the world, Billy, he hates, um, he hates Adam Driver. Oh, like he just has okay. no, no feeling towards Adam Driver. And I feel like um, since knowing Billy, I've co- kind of just um, incorporated and assumed his tastes. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely don't love everything he loves and I don't hate everything he hates, but speaking to him about and seeing Adam Driver through his lens has made me see actually he's just very plain and one notey, you know? Yeah, I feel um, sad for Adam Driver because I know I actually quite like Adam Driver into like after this film and I know that he's got a coming up like an action. Oh, yeah, 65 years or something. 65, 65 million uh, or something. Yeah, I want to see that, by, by oh, the way. Okay. I do want to see that. I, I feel like that kind of trope is not going to, is not appealing to me. And mm. I, I was assuming that white noise would be something quite interesting, but I think the story, it was just because it was, it's an adaptation from a book and I haven't read the book yet. No. So. Mm. I don't know how well that it's been adapted to the the film. 
you know, you, you have to compare the original work and the film. But the film itself is just, it, I don't know, it just feels like there's something wrong with it, you know, editing or the pace is just very strange. The dialogue, it was just falling out of places. The acting was all right. Mm. But, um, I always feel that Adam Driver has given, been given like very poor script to do. Mm. Um, he was really good in KKK, the one he uh, he was in with what? Uh, Klansman? Uh, yeah, yeah um, Denzel Washington's son. Um, right. What's name? I can't remember. John Washington? David. David John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very good in that film. I don't think I've seen that. Yeah, watch it. I I, I will enjoy that. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I remember having conversations with people who who are smart and who liked it. Yeah, it's uh, that, yeah. That's, that's actually a quite a good film. And also the other one where he was in this is kind of like a silly, stupid movie that he was in with Bill Murray, where they were trapped in a town full of zombies. <laughs> I love zombie genres, oh, but that film was yes. like a. Um, they play these uh, cops who just don't care about what happened. And you know how well that Bill Murray plays just like playing yes, yes. non-expressional, non-expression face. Yeah, I think that film was pretty good as well. I can't remember the name. It's something about zombie, but I enjoy watching that as well. But I don't know. Is there something very strange with, with white noise that didn't click with us? Yeah. yeah. Um, did you watch Marriage Story? I did. I did. Did you like that? that? Yeah, it was okay. You should read Billy's take on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's he's spot on when kind of like I I didn't I I don't think I didn't didn't enjoy I didn't not enjoy Marriage Story, but um, I definitely kind of I thought there was a lot of overacting. I thought it was very melodramatic. It was like a, a story. Mm. that pitted you know a straight couple and their problems as you know the most important thing in the universe which i know i should accept the movie as it is and on its terms it was just a story about um kind of you know a straight couple and their divorce mm-hmm. but and their child and their child but there's just something so kind of um um so, so kind of like there's something so it's just something about adam driver and his sensibility, especially in that film, that I was just like, oh, I can't stand it. I can't. I can't do any more of this kind of like white male, um, middle-aged white male kind of um, grief or anger or whatever. Patho- you know, I I just don't care about them. I don't it care about them. If that it's like trying to simp- making the audience sympathize with. I mean, there's nothing <sighs> wrong with besides who's who's white male, but oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that at all. So, um, that is so uninteresting to me. Okay, so let's jump into our consumptions on books this week. Do you have any or read anything interesting? Yeah, um, I am actually reading a book that's coming out in March, so the mm-hmm. end of March, but I got an um, advanced copy. So nice. I am take, talking about this book prematurely but uh but it's like so valuable to talk about it now because mm-hmm. you know i want people to start talking about it it's a book called inconceivable by alexandra collier and it's basically a memoir about a woman and her journey towards solo motherhood solo mm-hmm. parenthood so um the first 100 pages i read in one like sitting wow uh, i just okay. raced through it it's really 100 pages is not much for me, it's a lot because yeah. um, I tend to get like antsy very quickly. I can't just sit and <laughs> read a book uh-huh. without taking breaks quite often. Mm. But um, this book caught me immediately because of not just the story but also her writing. It's very fluid. But mostly it's a story. So it's about um, Alexandra and her uh, sort of early 20s moving to New York to pursue the great dream of being becoming a famous writer in New York and I found it extraordinarily relatable as in I found everything she said about wanting to be a great writer in New York and the way in which she paints New York as being this centre of culture and elite uh, literary uh industry I suppose mm-hmm. is uh, is just everything that I thought 
you know, five years ago about the kind of life I wanted and the kind of life that I saw for myself. Um, and she is from Melbourne and she has a background in theatre. So she, like me, took a lot of kind of workshops and uh, residencies in uh, America to facilitate her dreams of becoming one day, you know, a very famous playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sent us a story around um, her relationship with a man uh, seven years younger than her. And it got to the point where one day, I think she was 36 or 37, and she describes this uh, feeling that she's caused baby want. It's like this urge, maternal urge of wanting a baby suddenly. Mm-hmm. And um, so they go to a few um, sessions of therapy and it, it kind of unravels to the point where they uh, separate because the man is not ready to become a father. Mm -hmm. I see. And so she um, comes back to Melbourne and kind of um, reassesses her life, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and then um, goes on a couple of online, kind of finds a few dates online, and all the while she's thinking, I have to just date. I only have, like in her brain, she's just thinking, I have to date to find a father for my child. Mm-hmm. which is you know not the best way to date we yeah, all know um, but but it comes it gets to the point where she realizes um she wants to be a mother more than she wants to be paired yeah. up with someone okay. romantically mm-hmm. and so the story kind of traces her joining solo mother groups from facebook and then going to ivf and egg freezing uh clinics and discovering how she is at the age of 40 going to be able to conceive a child using a sperm donor mm. and and I'm halfway through the book so I'm still finishing it just because you know I have I'm a really slow reader but Helen the reason why I absolutely love this book is because here is a woman who has been perpetually romantically disappointed and and I love that because um I really relate not because mm. I don't have a loving partner and I haven't scored I'm really lucky I'm very grateful that I found someone who I love dearly and I can spend every day with with great joy, but it's because there are not enough stories out there that make it okay for you to be in your late 30s, your early 40s or whenever, mm-hmm. and for your womanhood and your self-worth to be valorized and celebrated just as much as someone who is, as a single lady, just as much as if you were partnered up, you know? and. Mm. I really found so much. Uh, I found so much of myself in this book because it, um, even though I am partnered up for now, who knows? Who knows what tomorrow will bring? You know, nobody knows um, what happens in the future. But um, I feel like because I was single for, I have been single for most of my life, I feel like internally my heart will always be that of a single woman. Like I always will feel like a single person like deep down in my heart Mm -hmm. and relate to single people better because i know the pain so well you know Mm, i see like i I know the pain of being judged i Mm. know the pain of people looking at you as though there's something wrong with you Mm, because mm. you don't have a partner it's more critical for female for the woman isn't it yeah it's the society the society's standard for justifying a woman's value is almost a lot of time is that whether or not that you're with someone, whether or not that you're being, um, it almost sounds very rude. Like, you know, you don't really see the same for men if the man is single. Um, if he's for woman, it's almost like the value of a woman is that whether or not you contribute something for another person right yeah exactly you know that's why single women are such threat in society yes yeah that's how the you know the patriarchy society perceives makes us yeah feel uh, a single woman yeah and also that's because that uh, a lot of society assumes that single women don't reproduce or they Mm. choose not to reproduce which is very wrong you know nowadays with the technology events that women can have kids themselves and there's nothing wrong with it as long as you're, you know, you, you are stable enough, you're financially stable enough to look after the kid and yourself and, you know, why not? 
sometimes it makes it <laughs> because I know I've heard so much story that you know in the heterosexual couple that often that when the woman divorces she feels like that she she's a lot more free she's a lot more, lot more liberal Hmm. And she doesn't. She, the only responsibility that she has is for herself and her young children. If she has young children, you know, N- no, n- nothing that she needs to look out for that male partner anymore. She doesn't need to care about that male partner, which is more frees up a lot more mental space for herself. Hmm. Yeah, I like that, and I like the idea of having more stories about single women. I That's know. Yeah. Saying. Yeah. Um, speaking of woman, um, so this week I have been reading Violet Cooper-Smith's novel, which is called Build Your House Around My Body. So it's, uh, it's, it's, the novel is structured around the disappearance of a 22-year-old Winnie, a Vietnamese-American, a biracial, who arrives in Saigon in 2010 to teach English. And she was seemed to be trying to reconnect her heritage but she obviously from reading the book um the protagonists neither feel like she's white or asian enough to feel comfortable with each designation so her biracial identity kind of renders her perpetual outside burdened by a lot of microaggression my, my, microaggression uh, and also self-loathing so it's layered and interwoven into other subplots that include like childhood friends who are also involved in the missing woman 25 years prior and it's constructed kind of like a disorganized timeline it jumps back and forth in the time um, this is inserting a lot of subplots about other places and other period of time um, I'm guessing that um, two-thirds of way through the novel, I'm guessing that at the end it will all come together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like a historical fiction and very similar to Woman East Stolen Bicycle. And I don't know if you have read a book called Garden of Evilly Mist. It's a historical fiction about Japanese occupation in Malaysia. Oh, okay. I hate historical fiction passionately, passionately. <laughs> so it's always like it's all uh, almost it's another novel that uh, retrospectively combines fiction and history. It's kind. Of, it comprises a lot of elements of Oriental ghosts, revenge, mystical mm-hmm. creatures, a lot of nightmares, past traumas of wars and conflicts. Uh, something about cells. East Asia that the heat and the humidity creates a sense of mis- mysterious atmosphere. Mm. I think mm. that perhaps only can be actualized in Asia or maybe in Africa as well. I think, yeah, that, you know, the sort of darkness in history that rarely people talks about. Mm, I love that. It sounds really great. I feel like you read more fiction than I do. Oh, I like reading, trying to expand on what I read and, um, you know, something that's not just, yeah, I, I think it, it, the novel needs to be, when I read it, I need to have a visual visual image in my head. So something like this historical fiction that is very destinational, very objectively on the destination that I can, you know, have that image. Yeah, yeah, head. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of propels me to continue to read it. Have you yeah. been to Vietnam? Yeah, I've been to Vietnam twice. Oh, yeah. so I can kind of feel like I can resonate to it. Yeah, yeah. and the people—you—they talk about the people, the street food. So when you have the resonate with that, you know, that area, it, it will, you know, help you to try try to finish it. Yeah, to, to finish the book. And if I'm reading somewhere that, you know, I have no image or I have nothing or it's something that is very abstract, you know, some writers, I think, Jesse, you're probably more into this, you know, some writers were just continuously talking about um, very abstract feelings mm. and I would just fall asleep. Really? I don't, yeah. I don't like abstract stuff. Oh, I, uh, you mean Katie Kitamura? No, Katie Kilimura is okay, but I yeah. think um, 
There's one book that I just couldn't fit. I've tried so many times. Jennifer Egan's Candy House? Uh, yeah, Candy House. <laughs> I will never touch that book. Um, you know, the, there's a American, a, Asian American, Yi Yun Li. Li Yi. Oh, yeah, oh, the woman from who's, my, yeah, woman who's from my life. suicide. I just could not. Like, I tried a couple of times, but she just. I find her very abstract too. Yeah, also, it's, it's so yeah, depressing. I cannot, yeah. I cannot read depressing yeah, I just stuff. Couldn't, yeah. She's like incredibly intelligent. Yeah, I know, I know. She's I, so I, smart, I and I wish stuff. I loved her. But yeah, I can't get into her stuff either. Yeah. I, just feel I feel like, bad yeah. as an Asian, but I shouldn't, you know. As if like all white people like every single white writer, you know. I shouldn't have to feel bad about not liking an Asian writer. Mm. Fuck that. So yeah. we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the news that's been uh, making the rounds around um, the community. Everyone's talking about uh, Roald Dahl and his uh, books being rewritten. Basically, mm. we'll be right back. Hi there! If you're new to our show, thanks for tuning in into our program, and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us, who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google or Spotify and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Okay, so we're back. Um, the first piece of literary news we want to cover this week, both of our stories this week, guys, are about literature. Yes. Uh, so that's really exciting. We love talking about books and words. Um, and the first piece of news, of course, is uh, the news last week that Roald Dahl's books have been edited and rewritten um, in the latest UK editions, okay? Um, so basically um, what's happened is a bunch of the, the people who have published the book Puffin and also the Roald Dahl company, they hired these kind of sensitivity readers. So they hired this company, um, what's the company called? I forgot what their company called, but the company um, is in my article somewhere for, for Women's Agenda. Uh, the company basically um, helps um, the book, like they change the, the past editions and specific words to, I guess, like to more aligned with today's lingo, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah. um, very a sense of very basically, they change. They've got rid of words like fat, ugly, black, um, beast. Uh, yeah, they got words. Uh, they got rid of um whole descriptions such as, um, the line in James and the Giant Peach, where the art sponge um is ter- is uh described as terrifically fat and tremendously flabby. That line has now been. Uh, removed and replaced with um, the aunt sponge is a nasty old brute and deserves to be squashed by the fruit. And so like kind of words like fat and ugly um, have been erased and also um, gendered terms have now been neutralized. So like cloud men are now cloud people. I mean, this, I feel like this conversation has, is not new. You know, we have come across uh, this incident of like um, old works in English being revised, you know, yeah. to um, to suit today's readers, I mm-hmm. suppose, is mm-hmm. the way, way of saying it. Um, <clears throat> I guess my first reaction is like, I don't know, I, I really wanted to know what the smart people think before I decided what to think, right? And um, one person I follow on Twitter who I just think is, um, the smartest person when it comes to issues of kind of um, language, race, power, mm-hmm. um, is Anton He, who is an American-Korean translator and writer. And he tweeted this um, when this news came out. He said, this has less to do with censorship and more to do with an estate cynically squeezing out every last bit of money they can, they can from the IP of a long-dead person. 
Not mm. all books deserve to be passed on. Not every author's works is a classic. We can let some go. It is okay. Yeah, I totally agree with that. What did you think about this whole thing, Helen? Well, since since the news of rewriting or reword so-called reword rewording of Rodell's book uh, there are some writers coming out you know both sides by saying that oh yeah it, I, I support I support the, the publishing uh, institution to rewrite Rodell's book because it's such a good plot it, you know it's like a all-time children's favorite but it needs to be correctly set it in the modern times I think Andy Griffin's talked about that he the support that kind of action but i hearing what anton her has said i actually agree with him more because after all you think about it if you want to if you want to promote more different sort of writers to write their own stories continuously publishing like what how old Rodell's books like decades or three four like, five decades yeah yeah he started writing in the 60s yeah it's not real I'm not saying that kids shouldn't be reading them anymore but I'm saying that you want to give you know young writers an opportunity to have their books published and also being read by the younger generation as well you yeah know, you can't continuously just saying that Oh, um, in order to fit into the current society, we need to kind of reword uh, what he's wrote. But at the same time, it almost seemed as they're just trying to keep a continuous uh, cash flow in by yeah, exactly books. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that these smart writers basically have nailed it on the head. They they know exactly why this has been done, and it is at the end of the day to keep making money from yeah. books. Because if we know that, okay, it's written in that period of time, that's fine. Okay, if we can accept that, we don't want to read it anymore. Yeah, yeah. there are so many it. better books we out there. We can choose not to buy it for our kids anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, I, I don't agree on what he wrote ages ago, you know. Um, I hate I hate this idea of canon as well. Like every kid needs to read Roald Dahl or like there are children's classics. Like every time I hear anything to do with the canon or classic, I just flinch because that basically means white. Yes. Anytime I hear canon or classic, it means white. It's like a very standard kind of forcing down your throat saying that, yeah, oh, you have to masterpiece, read it. So you yeah. have to read it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are modern writers who will write the similar narratives that will be Way better. better. Yeah. yeah. But it's just because... And it's not anti-women or anti-Semitic. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. that's right. Yeah, so why do you need to bother to care about... It's almost like you need to prop up, you know, the old works for the sake of tradition but whose tradition again who's exactly tradition? not my exactly. tradition you know yeah, I exactly. grew up. a lot of kids from you know um ethnic backgrounds don't have the similar they won't resonate to those stories at all yeah exactly you know, they they don't feel like they're you know, when you're reading a story, like you said about just before the break about, you know, how the single woman's experience and things like that, it's only been written, I mean, in, in the past, Jane Austen, of course, but um, it's only in the very recent decades that we start to have voices of our own to write about our own experience or our own opinions. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to hold on so tightly about another white male's um ideas and opinion how to write a you know a children's book um yeah so that's my thoughts which we will expand onto something else a little bit later on cultural appropriation in literature Mm. yeah no i feel like this is a great segue to move on to our second piece this this week second piece of story revolves around uh a, a quite um a very triggering, I have to say, an alarming 
pair of articles i'd say pair um so a pair a, a, a two a pair of um perspectives we're gonna talk about for you listeners out there so um basically uh on february 10th so this was published a few weeks ago actually i didn't i didn't know that mm. um the herald the city morning herald published an opinion piece by an australian white australian author in her 70s called hazel edwards uh, and the title was called after more than 200 books don't tell me who i can write about uh, already that that headline makes me flinch it's like a jab it's like a needle in uh, through my skin and um and then subsequently this woman i mean she starts off quite um aggressively she her mm -hmm. first line opening sentence statement opening paragraph is and i quote I'm not indigenous, I'm not Muslim, I'm not a refugee, I'm not transgender, I'm not disabled, and I'm not a hippopotamus who eats cake. So um, she goes on to talk about, I mean, that, that, that paragraph alone just makes me like wince in so many different, on so many it's different levels. It's not levels. humble. It's oh my God. It's, no, that, that is like the least, that is like the least criticism about that, about that paragraph. It is so um, wildly oblivious to her own kind of status and her mm. own kind of power. But anyway, I'll just sum up the article. Um, she talks about how there are um, loud voices, and I quote from the fifth paragraph, she says, loud voices from minority or underrepresented cultures are claiming that the only people entitled to tell or review their stories must come from that culture. And she goes on to talk about how she has every right to talk about, you know, to to write from any perspective. Because and then she tries to defend herself by saying, "I've, I've um, hired people. I've done my research. I hate when white people do that. I've done my research. Mm. Ugh, just like try, try, try to be someone who's not white for a day, you know. Anyway, um, and uh, the term cultural preparation. Um, I mean, this whole conversation, this whole article when I read it was like a jab in my stomach, mm -hmm. constant jabbing, like every single line felt like a jab because of just how irksome this woman's um, opinions are and how kind of absolutely lacking in self-awareness she is. Kind of like the same reaction I got when I read Jane Caro's opinion piece a few weeks ago while she was when she was so oblivious to the, the level of uh, lack of self-awareness that she exhibited. Mm -hmm. just purely by her her piece about you know ageism but um yeah so this woman um she wrote in particular about like having co-written using people of color as like her sort of like um she said that she had consultations with them she she, she was like um talking about a series that she wrote called hijab girl mm -hmm. um uh in which she said she began co-writing with the librarian Oscar Alcan at her invitation in 2014 and um, talks about the series and how much she's done in kind of trying to make sure she doesn't offend anyone, I guess, in her books because her books take perspectives that are not white. Mm -hmm. And um, and then just this week, actually, in fact, a day ago, Oscar Alcan, she wrote a response Mm. to Hazel Edwards' piece in Mianjin. Now, Helen, take us through that piece, how it was different, what it did. Mianjin is um, a is an online, it used to be publication, like um, hard copy magazine, um, literary magazine, um, and it centres on non-white perspectives. Um, mm. There are still white people who write on it, or write for it, but um, it is way more kind of diverse in oh. its um, perspective. Mm. So, um, so Oscar actually wrote a response on Mianjin because you only found out at the end of her article that her response was actually submitted to the Age, which is also you know the, on the Sydney Morning Herald, but they were re it was rejected on the wow, basis. Wow, I didn't, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, go, oh yes, go down the, here, yeah. And that on the basis that there were no single clear argument that could be summarized into a headline. So it tells a lot, okay? So I want to start off with Mianjin's piece by Oscar of her response to Hazel Edwards. Um, to me, it feels like almost like it's a preemptive defensiveness of a white yeah, yeah. writer yeah. 
I agree. I agree. Saying that, oh, don't tell me what not to write because I'm not a person of color. Um, so Oscar in the piece of Mianjin quarterly, um, we read about her side of her story that, um, you know, the idea of writing the kids book, um, Hajib Girl, a series of, um, you know, like the young, uh, not young adult, sorry, it's children's book. Um, she actually was the person who had the idea of writing it. And then Hazel Edward initially suggested to mentor her. But then later she got an email from her that uh, Edward want to kind of change, you know, kind of like a pivot into another direction with the subject of the email said that co-writing rather than only mentoring. So uh, to me, it feels like, okay, you're slow. The white writers is all already slowly trying to transgress that kind of boundary mm. of taking the position of co-writing. Now I'm not going to just going to stand back behind the screen. I want to be in front of the screen and co-write it with you so I can have my name there on the book once it's published. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say. So, you know, from the Mianjin piece, there's a, there's a side of the story um, that goes back and forth that she said that they had rejections uh, and she tried to convince her to fix or edit the book or there's, you know, some progress with the book and she started noticing things. Um, I'm going to quote here from her article. Uh, Oscar said that, I start noticing things. It was her insistence that we put the second book out as it was. It practically early first draft format that finally got to me, got me to see it. She didn't care about the content. She wanted the cover with a smiling hajib child on it for her PR. So she was saying, Oscar was saying that, um, my my own feeling of what the reason that she wrote this piece in response of Hazel Edwards' article was that she felt like she's been used as a token, yeah, yeah, by a diversity uh, children's book, but she didn't have a lot of her real inputs into that work, even so that she had the name on it, but the person who were was granted the biggest advantage was hazel edwards and then now hazel edwards is coming back and say don't tell me what not to write about because i'm a writer i have you know my it's kind of, you know those freedom of expression bullshit um people yeah i can't believe that someone would still be so unaware of their power in, in in 2023 but obviously yeah a lot of people or well, older white people suppose yeah I guess, once, you, once you reach that kind of position do you kind of forget yeah any elemental aspects of humbleness like they will continue to believe that because they earn it they have the right to take away from other people and I think on one of our doing our text um, conversation, you talked about Lionel Shriva, who only not only it is it was years ago that she kind of did the same thing as well. Do you want to take us through that, or do you want to just briefly mention it? Oh well, it's your idea, you know, Shriva in twenty sixteen and her Brisbane Writers Festival um, opening speech about um, the. And her, the you know the sombrero controversy of basically taking basically um, Hazel Edwards um, exactly parrots Shriver's um, mm-hmm. argument back then, which is that you know um, censorship is dangerous, and that um, I have the right and I am entitled to write from any perspective because I write fiction, um, and uh, and I'm kind of just shocked that even after that whole fiasco six, seven years on, um, we, we would still have people um, singing that same chorus. So, 
Yeah, it was. I mean, it's so it's so like when when I when you just actually I didn't read that editor's note that um that Oscar had submitted this piece as a response to the age and mm. they rejected it on the basis that there was no single clear argument that could be summarized into a headline. That's a very poor. Wow. Wow. I like, I'm just. Yeah. That's just pathetic. Wow. Wow. Basically they just didn't allow, they had the power to silence her again, not to to have a right to response and to give out her side of a story, you know, and I understand, like, I understand what the white writers are saying that, yeah, I have the right to write, you know, it's a fiction or I don't care. But then it's almost like you're colonizing, colon, you know, colonizing. you're colonizing other people's experience. You're exploiting other people's experience as well by even saying that, yeah, I've consulted with. POC, I've spoken to them, but you never lived in the body of a woman of colour. I think that viscerally you, I don't think you will be able to write the similar sentiment. And for myself, my own perspective as a writer, like I take enormous care of choosing the book I read and I try most of the time with the books that my children read when I select a book for my child. I will try to look for a book that is written by POC mm-hmm. or people from my minority groups and you will be surprised that there are actually a good number of white writers writing Asian mythical legends you know or historical novels by white writers mm. um, I had this conversation I don't know if I mentioned it in our podcast before but I have I, I did mention it to you just a while ago that I had a conversation with my daughter about looking at the author's surname and also looking at their backgrounds mm-hmm. to ensure that we we know that it's kind of authentic. I don't want to use the word authenticity here because everyone kind of manipulate the definition, but because the reading is a habit that you build from a very young age and you will determine, maybe not exclusively, but most of the time your choice of books when you're an adult and how well you adapt into the style of writing and how well you adapt into different genres. Um, to put it in a, sim- in a very easier way to understand, like metaphorically speaking, it's almost like growing up eating a certain food and it becomes your favorite food and you are constantly going back for it. So if you're growing up reading a very monolithic style of writing, mm-hmm. i.e. white people, white writers, you will kind of, you know, fall for that kind of path and you will continue to select that kind of books that you will less likely to diversify your selection of books, which means you will not really feel for others. You will not feel empathetic enough, I think. It's almost like you are what you eat. And to me, it's like you're what you read. Like, um, did you, did, does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so I think if you don't, especially for children's book, if you just get them to read, if you they grow up reading the same type of genre, same type of writing, that they will, of course, eventually choose the same when they're an adult. So for mm. me, I think it's very important here when... I love that. Me, yeah, it gets me really angry, especially she's a children's book writer as well. You're kind of like, okay, you're already, if you're in our adults' literature world, it's already in the West, it's already dominated by white writers. And now when people of color is trying to explore their opportunities in adults' writing world and literacy and also publishing, they're also trying to kind of go into, they're also trying to, insert themselves the poc trying to put themselves you know as a representation for the children's book and literature as well but here comes a white writer who is not so much gatekeeping but trying to step in and take over do you understand what i'm saying i don't know yeah. I, I don't know if i'm making good sense here but yeah um, you are yeah, yeah yeah definitely um it's really hard at the first place for for writers of color and other minority groups already 
but then you know and when if you want to become an ally for all the white writers out there if you want to become an ally don't try to make yourself co-write with a person yeah of color, i know oh. color, you know don't don't center yourself yeah the thing is um the thing is um it's so hard for them not to because they're so used to they're so that is the default to center oneself mm. if you're white of course the world revolves around you you know mm. most of us grow out of that when we become adults, you know, children think the world revolves around them. But unfortunately for white people, I think it's harder because the whole world revolves around white people and their power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of power, so these two articles really made me think about, you know, your power to write. Can you think of any people like writers of colour mm. writing stories of, white people never well i can't i can't at least not the ones i read yeah most of them like and also you know it, it's it's almost like the power to write why would you even like i wouldn't want to write a story about a about. white christian girl who grew up in mosna because that's not my fucking own experience you know and it's also not interesting <laughs> and it's also you didn't consider the power to speak out your privilege to write about someone else's story where Hazel Edward did here. You know, she had the privilege and the platform to talk about what she thought on Sydney Morning Herald and get published. But whereas, you know, the writer of colour in this story had no power to speak her mind. She had yeah. no, you know, the equal Not ability. Given a platform. She wasn't given a platform to speak out her, her side of story. Really, everyone need to consider, you know, the power to speak freely and who's actually got the power to publish and also consider when someone's saying that, oh, no, it's not cultural appropriation. Who is saying it? Like, who is determined what is not and what it is? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like such a... Uh, I th I'm thinking of showing my students this actually, Helen. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I want them to know. I want them to know. I want. I want to teach them that you shouldn't believe everything that you read mm -hmm. in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting for me to show them. That would be a good discussion. I would love to hear. Yeah, this yeah, I know. Like yeah, what yeah, they yeah. think about, like from their own position. Yeah. Um. What do they think? Like, who has the privilege to speak out? to determine what is or what is not cultural appropriation and who is the actual benefit benefactor here you know who's taking advantage of what yeah and then i can tell show them tell them about Mianjin as well mhm mm okay so that's the end of our episode remember to subscribe to our podcast um, on Spotify, Google and Apple and give us a 5 star rating if you'd like to support us what we do here at Asian Business Down Under head to buy me coffee page to make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry so that's it from us this week and we'll chat to you next time and read widely read widely <laughs> yeah read widely